recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 17th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today is, um, well, this is a while since I've done a program from the road. Tonight, Melissa and I are in Naples, Florida, which I am now convinced, at, after four, four or five days here, is the winter capital of the United States, because it's certainly the, um, the, the winter capital, it seems, of world Jewry. I, 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 wow, in America, I've never seen so many Jews and heard so many Eastern European accents in my 36 years in New Jersey and New York City. That's for certain, all in one place. It, it's amazing to me how many of them are here in Naples, Florida. That There must be... Um, it's like all of Goldman Sachs is on vacation, and they're right down the road here. That, that's the way Melissa and I feel anyway. We went to, um, we, we did something interesting the other day. We went to the First Baptist Church of Naples, and, and we attended a Baptist Bible study. Imagine that. And, and I did that with my host here. And, and um, just for the sake of doing it, he wanted to do it. He, he, it's the church he attended sometimes irregularly before he found Christian identity and realized he should stop attending such churches. And, and he thought that um, it would be interesting to have me there. It, it's, um, it, it was a learning experience for me because I'd never been to a Baptist Bible study. And the... Um, well, where Paul talks about the systemization of deception, it, it's definitely apparent to me that, that they have systemized it very well. And I'll be writing about it on the Christiania Forum and hopefully in an article in the near future. Tonight I'm going to take a break from the letters of Paul and two Corinthians and present two of Clifton Emmerheiser's rather early essays. It, it's um, that these are from earlier in the years of Clifton's ministry. Anyway, the unseen world within our world, and a truth hidden for twenty-seven hundred years. And both of these are certainly um, succinct and. <laughs> very appropriate for the um, the things that Melissa and I have observed here in, in Naples, Florida, these last five days. The unseen world within our world, if I had to guess when Clifton wrote this, I would probably say 2002, perhaps. Many people today have a strange feeling that many things in the world are not right, but they don't seem to be able to put their finger on just what the problems might be. For them, things simply don't add up. They wonder why there are so many wars and police actions, and yet no one ever seems to win. 
They continue day to day with their nose to the grindstone, but simply cannot get ahead no matter how hard they try. It seems like it's always one step forward and two steps backward. One gets the feeling one is on a treadmill, going through a lot of motion, but never going anywhere. Do we dare ask the question, is there something out there somewhere we don't know about? Yes, there is something out there, and it's so cleverly concealed, less than one in 1,000 can detect it. As a matter of fact, it is right under our noses everywhere we turn. (laughs) It is indeed, and we deal with it every day of our lives. Try as we will, we can't get away from it, and it affects every phase of our lives. So we ask. Why can't we see it then? The reason, and, and many people do ask that question, why they, that they know that there's something wrong and, and they, that they join one cause or another thinking they're going to fix the world, but they never really figure out what is wrong. They can never quite put their finger on it. The, um, the political paradigms fail them when the Republicans get in power or when the Democrats get in power or when the candidate they think is going to fix everything and and makes all the right statements, gets in power and doesn't do a damn thing, people wonder why that is. (laughs) They just can't see things get straightened out. The reason why we can't see it is because it is one of the oldest tricks in the world. To explain it, let's think of it this way. Suppose we were to play a game of football and both teams wore the same style and color of uniform. What kind of a football game are we going to have? Suppose we were in a war and everybody wore the same style and uniform. What kind of war would we have? If it were a football game, everyone would be tackling their own players. If it were a war everyone would be shooting their own men. Strange as it might seem, this is exactly what is going on in the world today. The problem is the opposing side has figured out how to secretly identify their own players, and our side hasn't. With these kind of odds, what kind of football game or war are we going to have? That's right, you've already guessed it. Everything is stacked against us, and our side doesn't stand a snowball's chance in hell. This type of deceptive camouflage is so old it is spoken of in the Bible. Matthew chapter 7, chapter 10, and Luke chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. It is labeled as wolves in sheep's clothing. That's right, both sides look like sheep. Now wolves, by their very nature, love to kill and eat sheep. Do you suppose if the sheep can ever become smart enough to identify the wolves, would they possibly stand a chance of winning this football game or war? For the wolves, it's no football game, for they fully intend to destroy every last sheep. How, then, 
can the sheep begin to identify the wolves? This is really an almost impossible task, for the wolves have been running a 2,000-year propaganda campaign to make the sheep believe the wolves are also sheep. Oddly enough, the identity of the wolves can be found in a very unusual place. And Clifton here is about to um, make a quote from Josephus, and it's a quote that has been overlooked by so many Christian so-called scholars for so many hundreds of years. And, and this goes with the, um, it, it goes quite well with the truth and, and the argument presented in the second paper from Clifton we're going, we're going to present here tonight, which is the, about the truth hidden for 2,700 years. This, um, this quote from Josephus has been overlooked for so long, and it has, a, it's a very profound statement if someone actually sits and considers it. And it's a very simple statement, and it's, because of its simplicity, it's rather easy to overlook. But if you really think, what did Joseph say? What did Josephus say there when he says it? It, it? it makes one understand that these people today called Jews are not who they say they are. Now, now Clifton made reference to this um, wolves in sheep's clothing line from the Bible that, that this wolves in sheep's clothing idea, which is how we express it today. It's not quite how, um, how Christ expressed it, but he basically said that same thing, calling them his enemies, wolves in sheep's clothing. And, and Clifton made reference to John chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, among other scriptures, but I'll read that one. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life on behalf of the sheep. The hired hand, who also not being the shepherd, of whom the sheep are not his own, watches the wolf come and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf seizes and scatters them, because he is a hired hand and there is no care in him concerning the sheep. And we see wolves in sheep clothing throughout so-called Judeo-Christianity today. And that's exactly what they've done. And, and the hired hands, the True Israelite Christian pastors have been afraid of the wolves and flee when they come, that, that they give in to the wolves or they let the wolves have their way over and over and over again. Clifton goes on to say, after explaining that there, was a, there has been a 2,000-year propaganda campaign to make the sheep believe that the wolves are also sheep, that oddly enough, the identity of the wolves can be found in a very unusual place. In Josephus, in Wars of the Judeans, Book 2, Chapter 8, Paragraph 2, according to the numbering of the book by William Whiston. And Clifton says that Josephus strips the sheep's clothing from off the wolf and leaves the naked wolf exposed for what he is. And here is what Josephus says, 
For there are three philosophical sects among the Judeans, the followers of the first, of whom are the Pharisees, of the second, the Sadducees, and the third sect, who pretends to be a, I'm sorry, who pretends to a severer discipline are called Essenes. These last are Judah by birth and seem to have a greater affection for one another than the other sects have. Clifton asks, what in the world is Joseph is saying here? Does Josephus mean there were some Judahites or Judeans who are not Judahites by birth? Well, that seems to be what he is saying. And he should know, for he lived right there among them during that time. If what Josephus is saying here is true, it really throws a monkey wrench into this whole thing, doesn't it? Because, of course, the Jews cannot be God's chosen people. After this statement by Josephus, is there any way we can make any sense of this thing? For from this, it would appear that there are some Judahites who are sheep and some other Judahites who are wolves. Well, let's take a stab at it. For a moment, let's very carefully analyze what Josephus is saying here. Josephus is implying that the Pharisees and Sadducees were not of the tribe of Judah by birth. But the Essenes were. This is quite enlightening, for it is pointing out that the Pharisees and Sadducees were not kindred to the Messiah, but the Essenes were. Well, this goes contrary to everything we have been taught, doesn't it? Maybe instead of trusting the so-called adepts or the experts, we should take time to carefully examine this thing for ourselves. It would appear the only way we are going to make any logic out of this confusion is to go back to the beginning of the story of Judah. According to the Bible, we are told Judah was the fourth son of Jacob Israel. Judah, we are informed, married a Canaanite woman by the name of Shua. By her, Judah had three children, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The Almighty killed Ur and Onan, leaving only Shelah. Upon the death of Judah's wife, Shua, Judah's intended daughter-in-law, Tamar, dressed up like a whore and enticed Judah to father a set of twins by her, named Pharez and Zerah. Because Judah was an eligible widower and Tamar was unwed, her marriage not being consummated with either Ur or Onan, the union could not be considered illicit. From the Pharez line came the Messiah. Thus, there were three branches of Judah. One, Pharez. Two, Zerah. And three, Shelah. Therefore, there were Pharez Judahites, Zerah Judahites, and Shelanite or Shelah Judahites. The Judahites, who were, who were the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees at the time of the Messiah, were for the most part Shelanite Judahites from Judah's first wife, 
Shua the Canaanite. This demands another question to be asked. Who were the Canaanites? And Clifton didn't qualify that statement. However, the book of Malachi, in chapter 2, basically demonstrates the truth of that statement. Because the book of Malachi, in Malachi chapter 2, is actually a prophecy of the events of the discourse between Christ and those same Pharisees and Sadducees found in John chapter 8. In Malachi chapter 2, the priesthood is described as being rather despoiled for the reason that Judah had married the daughter of a strange god, speaking of this marriage with Shua. And the prophet goes on to make a, um, a dialogue between these people who were priests but who were not Levites, who he is describing in Malachi chapter 2. The prophet goes on to create a dialogue between these false priests and God himself, and the false priests ask, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And if you examine John chapter 8, where the words of Christ tell the Sadducees and Pharisees that they wrote their father the devil and that they are not of God, they ask, we have, have we not one father? We are not children of fornication. We have one father, even God. Well, that's not true. And Malachi presaged that with his statement that Judah had married the daughter of a strange god. So we can cross-reference Malachi 2 and John chapter 8 and see that Clifton's assertion is certainly correct, at least to a great degree. Clifton goes on to explain, the word Canaan is the name of the fourth son of Ham, on whom Noah placed a curse. Being cursed, Canaan was kicked out of the family and mixed among other tribes, ostensibly not descendants of Noah. Eventually, these Canaanites became ten interrelated and racially mixed nations. Listed in Genesis chapter 15, verses 19 through 21, as Kenizzites, Kenites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. As the Kenites are mentioned first, let's see who they were. Checking the Strong's Concordance, we find the Kenites are listed. The word Kenite is listed as Strong's Hebrew number 7017. Going to the Strong's Hebrew Dictionary under that number and the related word 7014, we discover the Kenites are descendants of and named after Cain. Thus we find the scribe, Pharisee, Sadducee, Shalonite, Judahites at the time of the Messiah were actually of the cursed bloodline of Cain. What a sticky wicket this has turned out to be, and hardly anyone is aware of this not-so-well-known fact. Now, 
Clinton asks, is it possible that Messiah was correct when he accused the Shalomite Judahite Pharisees and Sadducees of being guilty of all the righteous blood from Abel to Zacharias? And of course, only the, only the descendants of Cain could be responsible for the blood of Abel. No descendants of Noah could be responsible for the blood of Abel. And Clifton cites Matthew 23, verse 35, and Luke 11, verse 51. And he states, if this is true, we have a whole different kind of war going on in our world today than the majority of people have any idea. And he asks, what then are the implications? As usual, Clifton states, we must go back to the beginning of the story. And the only way we can properly understand world events of today is to see where the war started. It is all spelled out in Genesis 3.15, where the almighty Yahweh made the following declaration. And I will put enmity or mutual hatred between thee, meaning the serpent, and the woman, and between thy seed, meaning the offspring of the serpent, and her seed, meaning the offspring of the woman. It, the woman's offspring, shall bruise thy, the serpent's head. And thou, or the serpent's offspring, shall bruise his heel. And Clifton goes on to explain the word seed is zara in Hebrew, and is translated as sperma in Greek, and it means offspring or issue. You can see that our English word sperm is a spin-off of the Greek word sperma. When we speak of sperm, we are talking about genetics. The word Adam, the um, Strong's Hebrew lexicon numbers 119, 120, and 121, the word Adam in Hebrew means ruddy, to show blood in the face, flush, rosy, a trait found only in white people. Seed is used in a singular sense, meaning a single variety of seed. Therefore, the war in Genesis 3.15 is a genetic seed line war. It is a war between the seed line of the serpent through Cain versus the seed line of the woman through Seth. It cannot be overemphasized that this war is to the death of one side or the other, as the two simply cannot coexist. Once we understand these things, we can begin to see who the opposing forces are in this war and can start to distinguish the wolves from the sheep. And I would personally add to this that the seed of the serpent goes beyond merely the descendants of Cain to understand that the serpent represents the entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil and all of the angels who fell in the, in the earlier war described in Revelation chapter 12, we see an entire corrupt race related to the serpent at the time that Adam was placed in the garden had already been somewhere on this earth.
Clifton goes on to state, the wolves' agenda. By natural genetics, the wolves, will continue to destroy the sheep until there are no more sheep left. War is one of the devices which the wolves use to destroy the sheep. By manufacturing an incident to foment the sheep, the wolves can finance both sides of a war and get the sheep to kill each other. Therefore, the wolves have financed the Napoleonic Wars. I would say it goes back long before that. The American War, World Wars I and II, the Korean War, the Vietnamese War, and all the so-called police actions under the United Nations ever since. The wolves are the authors of communism and have slaughtered approximately 140 million people worldwide since the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. The wolves financed the Bolshevik Revolution from the financial district within New York City. During the early years of the Soviet Union, the wolves killed and starved to death 20 million Ukrainian sheep people of the seed line of the woman. The wolf people have other ways of restricting the population of the sheep people. By causing financial recessions and depressions, the wolves have made it financially difficult for the sheep people to raise families thus retarding any increase in their population. Yet another stratagem employed by the wolf people is to destroy the sheep people by abortion and birth control. If this is not bad enough, one of the items on the wolf's agenda is to breed the sheep people out of existence through interbreeding them with non-sheep people. And because homosexuals and lesbians don't have children. The wolves have promoted this kind of lifestyle among the sheep. The wolves have gone so far as to infiltrate the sheep people's churches in order to convince the sheep people that it is Christian and politically correct to promote the wolf people's agenda. To ensure the success of their sheep-killing program, the wolves have wormed themselves into the sheep people's education system in order to poison the minds of the sheep people's little lambs. Today, almost every aspect of the world is controlled by the wolves. We have a wolf-controlled monetary system, a wolf-controlled political system, a wolf-controlled religious system, along with wolf-controlled news, movies, TVs, and books. In the United States today, the wolves have manipulated themselves into every branch of government. Well, this describes Europe, Australia, Canada, and every other sheep nation as well to maintain their wolf program of destroying sheep people. With such an evil program, one can begin to see why the wolves would want to appear as sheep. Messiah declared, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep people of the house of Israel. Matthew fifteen twenty four, And that concludes Clifton's unseen world within our world. And, and it's um, an idea that could probably be elaborated on for, for months 
because it's absolutely true. Most people not being privy to the identity of the wolves, not understanding the words of Christ, and certainly not gaining the word of truth from their pastors and in their churches, because those people are all under the same control of the wolf people. People cannot see that this is transpiring in our society. They have no clue as to why all of our foreign policies, all of our economic policies never bear fruition in our favor. Yet the bankers, they complain about the bankers getting fat and rich, and they complain about the rich getting rich, but they can never identify who those bankers actually are or who those so-called rich actually are. And, and this, not being identified, able to identify the wolves is directly related to not being able to identify the sheep. So for the later part of this presentation, we'll present another short essay from Clifton entitled, A Truth Hidden for 2,700 Years. And let me say that lately, I've been presenting the epistles of Paul here on Friday evenings. And so far we are midway through 2 Corinthians, approximately, and in almost every chapter of Romans and 1 Corinthians and so far in 2 Corinthians, in almost every chapter there is something, some quote from the Old Testament or some, in many cases, such as in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul said, to the Corinthian Greeks, that therefore having these truths, speaking of truths from the Old Testament, therefore having these promises, speaking of promises from the Old Testament, and, and, and in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and in Romans chapter 4, and in Romans chapter 9, again and again and again, Paul of Tarsus very plainly informs his the recipients of his epistles, who are Greeks and Romans and Galatians, that they are the children of Israel. So it's absolutely incredible. It's only within the power of, of Yahweh God that this truth could possibly remain hidden. Because this truth is the plain word of Scripture. Christian identity has to stand on the shoulders of Paul of Tarsus, who says over and over again that these pagan nations of Europe are the scattered Israelites of the Old Testament. And we have to come to understand the many ways in which Paul says that very clearly. 
so that we can assert that Christian identity is the only true, original, apostolic Christianity. With that, we will commence with Clifton's paper, A Truth Hidden for 2,700 Years. At the present, this age-old truth is not for everyone, although given time, each and every person will be confronted with it. At this juncture, you are probably wondering what kind of truth could be hidden from people for over 2,700 years. And the answer is that God hid it. And when God hides something, (laughs) it's hidden until he reveals it. You are probably thinking, surely, if it has something to do with God, my pastor or priest would know something about it. Yes, most pastors do understand part of the story, but generally, the entire truth to them is an enigma. Today, the Almighty is choosing a few of his people to witness to this truth. And unless he opens our eyes, in spite of our best efforts, we will not be able to comprehend it, pastor or layman alike. Therefore, if one desires to understand more, one must pray to him, meaning to Yahweh God, for knowledge and guidance. As the Bible instructs, we are to study to show thyself approved to Timothy 2.15. We are to study to show ourselves approved, not our pastors. They should study to show themselves approved. In other words, we have to study for ourselves. Clifton says, this puts the responsibility for exploring this hidden truth squarely on each individual. Thus, if they wish to be honest and just, the eligible and approved have no alternative but to test the validity or falsity of this age-old mystery. To come by knowledge, one must first concede the truth is greater than popularity, For this message has never been popular from its inception. Tragically, if one doesn't understand the breadth and scope of this truth, all of our energies will be misdirected, and we will end up aiding and abetting our ever-present, cunning, and pernicious enemy. The sheep people are aiding and abetting the wolf people because the sheep people don't study and seek the truth of Scripture. Blindness changed to light. As found in Isaiah chapter 42, especially verses 16 to 19, and I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not, and I will lead them in paths that they had not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images that say to the molten images, ye are our gods. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf 
as my messenger that I send, who is blind as he that is perfect and blind as Yahweh's servant. Seeing many things thou observest not, opening, opening the ears, but he hears not. And let's save it. We have the opportunity in the gospel of Christ to lift this blindness from our own eyes by studying and accepting his gospel and the words of his apostles. And that is because Christ said that he came to open the eyes of the blind. The actual healing of the blind, of physical blind people, as a miracle of Christ, which occurred quite frequently, was only symbolic of the fact that the gospel of Christ, once it is understood, and once it is accepted, and in order to start that, we have to accept the words of Christ. Christians don't accept the words of Christ. Christians, Judeo-Christians, reject the words of Christ because he says he only came for the sheep. And they say, oh, anybody could be a sheep. But no, he said he only came for the sheep that were already lost. And that can only refer to those sheep of Ezekiel chapter 34, for instance. The children of Israel, as the psalm says, David says, we are the sheep of his pasture. Those ancient Israelites were the lost sheep. He only came for them. He didn't come for everybody who believes. Clifton goes on to say, you will notice that not only are the people blind and deaf, the people described by Isaiah, but also the messenger, the pastors or shepherds are blind and deaf. This is why the majority of today's clergy cannot comprehend this hidden truth. The rest are afraid for various reasons. Isaiah 56, 10 to 11, points out some of them. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yeah, they are greedy dogs, which can never have enough. And they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone, for his gain from his quarter. And Clifton asks, why then consult someone with these traits on such serious matters? In other words, if the Bible tells us that his watchmen are blind, they are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. Why should we go to the watchmen for answers about this truth about the Bible? We shouldn't go to the watchmen. We, as Clifton pointed out, should study to show ourselves approved and study the scripture for ourselves. We don't need a watchman. We don't need a pontiff. We don't need a bridge to God. The scripture is accessible to all of us. Understanding that we are going to have to research and prove these things for ourselves with our own time and energy, let's consider where the truth resides. You may observe what is presented here and confirm it to your, to your own justification. Let's start by considering the proclamation made by the majority of the clergy. 
that today's Jews returning to Palestine is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Surely, had they read Jeremiah's prediction, Jeremiah 19, verses 9 and 10, they could not have made such a statement. Here, Jeremiah prophecies that Jerusalem, unlike the marred potter's vessel of Jeremiah 18, 4, which is Israel, which would be reformed in the hands of the potter, Jerusalem would never be made whole again. In chapters 18 and 19, he speaks separately of the house of Israel, the house of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Today's clergy lump all of these singular entities into one category, erroneously calling them Jews. Either Jeremiah is wrong about Jerusalem, or today's clergy are in error. Messiah himself said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, in Matthew 23 and Luke 13. Furthermore, he placed a curse on that remnant nation and said, Let no fruit grow on thee, henceforward forever. Let me say, um, in addition to what Clifton says here, no, I'm not going to say it, I'm sorry, Clifton says it in the next paragraph. Clifton continues by saying, also, there is no possible way the present-day Jews can fulfill any scripture as today's clergy claim, for they are converso Edomites. Today's clergy have documentation sitting on their bookshelves confirming this fact in various Bible publications, which only scratch the surface, but adequately verify the history of the so-called Jews. Thus, it is evident by pertinent scriptures that today's Jews will fulfill prophecies related to the Edomites, such as found at Malachi chapter 1, verse 4. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Let me say, and this is what I was going to interject earlier, that Jerusalem was thrown down by the Romans in 70 AD. That Malachi was a prophet of the second temple period. That when Jerusalem was thrown down by the Romans in 70 AD, that that was the end of the second temple period. Therefore, in Malachi chapter 1, where Malachi says that the Edomites are going to return and build the desolate places, that had not been fulfilled. It could not have been fulfilled before 70 AD because Jerusalem was not made desolate before 70 AD from the time of Malachi. Not by any means. So Jerusalem was not made the desolate place until the time of the Romans in 70 AD. So Malachi's prophecy is of something future to 70 AD. That simple. It's that simple. And nobody returned to rebuild 
anything in Jerusalem in the name of the God, the Hebrew God of the Bible, until the Edomites did in the 20th century. So Malachi must be prophesying of what the Edomites are doing today in Jerusalem, and we can only see the truth of that once we realize that these people claiming to be Jews but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan, that they are Edomites. Now, in Clifton's earlier paper, he connected these Jews to the Shelahites, and that's true. They can be connected to the Shelahites. But to a greater degree, from the pages of Josephus' history and from Paul's statements in Romans chapter 9, they can also be connected to the Edomites, today's Jews, these people who are not Judahites by birth, as Josephus described of the Essenes. The Pharisees and Sadducees were not Judahites by birth. Some of them were, but a great number of them were not. The Essenes required that. Upon verifying this data, I'll repeat Malachi 1.4. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down, and shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom Yahweh has indignation forever. And Clifton interjects, that that is a long time. And he states, upon verifying this data to one's own satisfaction, one can only conclude that today's so-called Jews are not who the clergy claim them to be. This, is vitally, this vitally important fact is essential to our comprehensive understanding. Then, once this premise is firmly authenticated, Beyond all reasonable doubt, the question arises, who are the true Israelites? And Clifton states, I thought you would never ask. Once one asks this question in his or her mind, the blindness and deafness is starting to wane. It is like awakening a person in a very deep sleep. They will express very angrily, let me alone. I want to go back to my dream world. After all, it's been a 2,700-year slumber, and you can't expect a person to wake up that quickly. Most people, upon discovering that they are the true Israelites, will retort, but I thought Jesus was a Jew. And you know, that, that idea that Clifton is, um, is expressing here is also expressed in Malachi chapter 2, or, or chapter 1, because Malachi chapter 1 starts off as a dialogue between Yahweh and Jacob, and Jacob asks, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Why do you love me? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The opening verses of Malachi, before where Clifton quoted, are actually an expression which very much fits the situation we see today, where the true white Christians, 
who are actually the descendants of Jacob, and they don't know it, express concern for Esau. And that reflects the reality of what's going on today. These white Christians are more concerned about these Jews in Palestine than they are themselves. They have no concern for other white Christians. They've they've been programmed to only have concern for the Jews in Palestine and, and the niggers in Africa, but that's a separate story. So they have more concern for the Jews in Palestine than they have for their own God and for their own people. That's what the prophet Malachi expresses in the first couple of verses of his prophecy in Malachi chapter 1. Clifton goes on to state, most people upon discovering they are the true Israelites will retort, but I thought Jesus was a Jew. That is a misnomer, for there were two different groups at Messiah's time claiming citizenship to the tribe of Judah. These were the true pure-blooded Judahites, such as the Essenes cited by historians such as Josephus and Philo, as a, and, and we've seen Clifton quote Josephus in his previous paper that, that we presented here this evening, as opposed to a group who had mixed their blood with the ten Canaanite nations, who in turn had absorbed the blood of Cain. On the other hand, our Savior was a pure-blooded Judahite. Josephus' Wars, Book 2, Chapter 8, Paragraph 2 states, For there are three philosophical sects among the Judeans, the followers of the first of whom are the Pharisees. And Clifton says that there are a few exceptions to that in a footnote, and there are. There were Pharisees that were, these were really political parties, and there were Pharisees who were Judahites as well. They were evidently in in the minority, of the second, the Sadducees, and the third sect, who pretends to a severer discipline, are called Essenes. These last are Judah by birth and seem to have a greater affection for one another than the other sects have. And let me state that Josephus was a Levite, and he was truly could be claimed to be of Israel. And he was a Levite by birth, and he records his own birth and gives his own genealogy. And there's no reason to doubt that Josephus is a Levite. And he was actually joined to the sect of the Essenes for about three years. And he knew early in his life, as a, in his late teens, he knew exactly what the Essenes required. And he knew the character and, and, and content of the sect of the Essenes firsthand. And for whatever reason, I don't even remember if he gave it or not in, in, his, in, in the autobiographical parts of his writing, but for whatever reason, Josephus chose to leave the Essenes and become a Pharisee. So he also understood the content and character of the sect of the Pharisees firsthand. So he can make this statement from an authoritative position. Arriving at this new revelation, meaning that Christ was not a Jew as we know them because Christ was a true member of Judah, 
So he couldn't have been a Jew because the Jews are obviously not true members of the tribe of Judah. Arriving at this new revelation, one must inquire, why have all the biblical promises been fulfilled in the white Anglo-Saxon and related peoples and absolutely none in the so-called Jews? The reason for this is obvious. We've been lied to. Also, it was part of our punishment, but we have reached a time for all these things to be made known. And Clifton asserts that there is a day of awakening appointed where he goes on to state that there were three appointed periods, meaning periods or errors in, in the history of the children of Israel from a religious perspective, the fishing period, the hunting period, and the watchman period. Jeremiah 16.16 16 speaks of the fishers and hunters. Of course, Messiah himself called the fishers. The hunters were the archaeologists who discovered through Israel's migrations from Assyria into Europe. And that is true. Jeremiah 16.16 prophecies of fishers who will fish the children of Israel and hunters who will dig them out of the holes of the rocks. That can, that can only properly describe the archaeologists who went hunting for the so-called lost children of Israel or the lost tribes of Israel. Of course, the British archaeologists did not set out to look for lost Israelites, but when they dug up Nineveh, and, and the Assyrian monuments and, and the Persian monuments and began to decipher them and translate them into English, they found the lost Israelites. They didn't set out to do it, but they ended up doing it. We are now in the final watchman period when Israel's relentless, deadly enemy is being identified. Today's clergy are aware only of the fishing period and blind to the hunting and watchman periods. That is why they will scoff at this age-old truth. But as much as they ridicule this message, we are told in Romans 11.25 that the Almighty has a time schedule and the blindfolds will be removed. And Clifton cites that passage in Romans and says, for I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the, fulfill, until the fullness of the ethnos, the fullness of the nations, meaning the Israel nations, be come in. Ye know, we know that this passage does not apply to the Jews, for they have never been a full-fledged nation, let alone a company of nations. If you will read the next verse, it is clear that it is speaking of Israel and not the Jews. The clergy, for the most part, haven't yet learned that these two terms, Israel and Judah, are not synonymous. You can check both the Hebrew and Greek, and Strong's Concordance decides 
assigns two separate numbers in both languages. If the clergy cannot be trusted to apply the terms Israel and Judah correctly, where else are they unreliable? After all, they're receiving pay for their services. And of course, the word Jew first appears in 2 Kings chapter 16 of the Bible. And it's used of the people of Judah who were having a war with Israel. So the word Jew cannot possibly be equivalent to the word Israel. The contention is quite ridiculous. 1 Peter 2.9 identifies true Israel. This is a very intriguing passage and reads thusly in the Revised Standard Version. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Bible reference books indicate that Peter was addressing this mostly to so-called Gentiles. And indeed, these were that this first epistle of Peter was written to the primarily Greek Christians of the assemblies of Western Anatolia, which Paul of Tarsus had founded. If one will check the cross-references in many Bibles, it will direct one to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20, and chapter 10, verse 15, which speak of Israel, not to some non-Israelite group. The Thompson Chain Reference Bible on this verse uses the guide number 2725 for chosen, which in turn refers to Deuteronomy 7.6, which says, For thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy Elohim. Yahweh thy Elohim has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Therefore, the so-called Gentiles of 1 Peter 2.9 are of the lost tribes of the house of Israel, which were formerly divorced but now purchased back by Messiah's blood. And, of course, 1 Peter chapter 2 also explains that, which Clifton stopped short of elucidating here by citing Hosea in reference to these same Gentiles these people that would be called not God's people, referring to Israelites, would indeed once again be called the sons of God, referring to those same Israelites. And Peter used that in reference to these so-called Greek Gentiles, or Greek so-called Gentiles, who were actually those same, among those same children of Israel who had been put off, 700 years before Christ, or longer in many cases. This is what, and Clifton subtitles his last paragraphs here, danger in blindness. This is what it all boils down to. We have a people today who are masquerading as Israelites, who are really the descendants of Cain, which we currently term as Jews. On the other hand, there are the true Israelites, represented by the Anglo-Saxons and related kin. Those false Jews are descendants of the seed of the serpent of Genesis 3.15, while the white Anglo-Saxon and related peoples are the seed of the woman 
referring to Eve. As this passage counsels us, there was to be enmity or hatred between these two parties. The seed of the serpent have an agenda to destroy the seed of the woman. They finance wars in order to get the white Israelite seed of the woman to kill each other. They succeeded in this very thing in the American Civil War, along with World Wars I and II. Presently, they are financing and promoting the white Israelites to destroy their own race through the process of miscegenation. Therefore, it is expeditiously paramount we awaken from our present stupor. And Clifton's papers, these two short papers, weren't really meant to be an exposition of the truths of these assertions by themselves. They were indeed meant to be a stimulus to encourage people to study these things further and prove them out for themselves. As Clifton explained in these papers, these papers would provide an honest inquirer of scripture. These papers would provide them with just enough information to set them down the path of investigation. Hopefully, some of those people who haven't read these papers may hear this podcast and be curious enough to follow that path. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night with Brett Light from the Daily Stormer and ExpelledTheParasite.com. And Brett and I, among other things, will be discussing his own path to the realization that only Christian identity represents the truth. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. I will be back next Friday, Yahweh willing, with 2 Corinthians part 8, or part 8 of our series of presentations on Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. Good night, and thank you for listening.